Matthew chapter 5. We said one of the key verses in Matthew, at least in the first chapter, is verse 20. Jesus says, if you want to inherit the kingdom, in fact, you never will unless you have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. And you need a greater or a beyond righteousness. And Jesus says that it has to be different. It can't be just external. It has to be one that is from the inside out. And he says all of that and gives us all of these illustrations about it because he wants for his first century readers as well as his 21st century readers to lose their self-confidence. He wants to force you and I today to realize that all the things he's going to ask from us in this passage of Scripture are impossible apart from him. And the underlying message today is that you can't do these things unless you have Jesus in your life, unless he's your Savior. And that includes all of us, including me. I was at Walmart a couple weeks ago in the Hamilton Marketplace, and I was coming out of Walmart, and I was kind of in a hurry because I had an appointment back here at the school uh, for some things, and I had to get back, and I was kind of cutting it close. And so the first four-way stop or stop signs when you come out of Walmart when you're heading back to the highway, and then it goes about 100 yards or so, and then you have a four-way light, and then you get to the main highway, and you have another four-way light. So I was at the four-way stop sign, and you know how it is. People kind of all pull up at the same time, and everyone sits there. Oh, you go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. And so I pulled up there, and the guy to the other side of me, who was probably coming out to the highway too, we pulled up about the same time. And so I was in a hurry, and I wasn't going to wait. I went first. And so I just took off and going down to the next light. So I go off the next light, and there's a couple cars in front of me, and I'm sitting there. And all of a sudden, that same guy comes by his car, and he stops his car next to my car. But there's still room between where he stopped and the stop sign, probably about 20 yards. So I'm looking at that stop, and I'm looking at that guy, and all of a sudden I look at him, and he's over in his car going like this. (laughs) He's yelling at me. I can't understand a word he's saying. I hope he knows that. So he told me a few things, and I'll leave it at that. And so he was yelling at me. So my first thought was, I wanted to go like this and kind of just, if you, I know this is only me, I, you would never do this, but I wanted to mock him and go like, <laughs> that's the first thing I wanted to do, because you're being ridiculous, number one, all right? And so I didn't do that because I looked over and dude, he was big, not a lie. <laughs> so I didn't mock him, I didn't do anything, and so I did the kind of like, I'm sorry, like that, so... I, he kind of simmered down and bought it and then drove the rest of the way up to the stop sign. It's like, whew. So after he's gone and he can't see me anymore, I wanted to get the, have you ever had the L gun? You know what the L gun is? Yeah. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? But I didn't. I didn't. I put the L gun in the holster. Didn't put that out there for him to do it. And, and left it at that. Now see, it was hard in my mind to practice righteousness in that case. It was easier to get on his case. He was yelling at me, you know, I wanted to say something back to him. You know why? Because that's naturally what we like to do, right? And what Jesus wants us to know is that he wants us to act supernaturally. That's what kingdom curriculum is all about. So I read in the scriptures that a couple days later after that incident, I got home and I was reading Acts 23. And the apostle Paul... 
Okay, keep that in mind. The Apostle Paul is standing before the high priest in the council of the Sanhedrin. And he had just been attacked in the temple. The Roman soldiers had to come from the barracks and rescue him before they beat him to death. They take him out of there. He gives this speech. And at the end of his speech, he says he's going to go to the Gentiles. And they get all inflamed again. And he had to take him inside to save his life. So he's finally standing in front of the high priest. And he's saying some stuff to the high priest. And the high priest doesn't like it. Now, the high priest guy's name is recorded. And it's Ananias. And Ananias is this kind of guy historically that he is about the opposite of anything you'd want in a high priest. I mean, he stole tithes that were given by God's people to God and used them for his own personal living. Okay? So he stole money from God and the people, and there were three people in front of him that were in line to become the high priest, so he had all three of them murdered. Okay, this is the guy. So this is the kind of guy that gets any punishment. You say anything mean to him, you do anything to him, the guy deserves it 100% and then some. So Paul is talking and says he's lived in a good conscience his whole life until now. High priest doesn't like it. So the guy next to Paul, he gives him the command, tupto. And tupto means hit him in the face. So the guy takes his fist, doubles it up, and smacks Paul in the mouth. Okay? So Paul says this, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Which in the Greek I found out was this. Okay, that was Paul's version of that, right? right? So literally, whitewash wall means hypocrite. In other words, who are you to condemn me? Look at you, right? So Paul would have said today, he would have said, hey, God's going to judge you and do more to you, you stinking hypocrite. That's what we would have said. Now, immediately, everyone around Paul is shocked, and rightfully so, because that wasn't the right thing to say. In fact, everyone says, hey, do you know, are you going to talk to the high priest like that? And Paul immediately says, high priest? Because he knows what Exodus 22 says. It says, you shall not speak evil about a ruler of your people. It was forbidden. It was a law. And Paul had broken it in his response. So he basically apologizes and said, oh, I, didn't, I don't know if the high priest wasn't in his high priestly garment. I don't know if he couldn't tell who it was. But Paul apologizes for that. And I thought, wow, you know, here's a guy, everything Paul said about Ananias was true. He was a stinking hypocrite. He was evil. And who was he to say anything? The guy was awful. But here, you know what the Bible says? He was still wrong because here's what the truth is. That's not how we respond when others wrong us. Contrast that with John 18. Jesus, very similar circumstances, in the council, standing before the high priest of that day. And he is asked questions, and, and the high priest doesn't like what Jesus is saying, so he tells the henchman next to Jesus, slap him, and he does. He slaps him across the face. And he says, do you talk like, to the high priest like that? And Jesus says, see, if I have done evil, then tell me. But if I have done well, then why do you strike me? Jesus says, hey, show me where I went wrong. But he doesn't retaliate. He doesn't call him a whitewashed wall. He doesn't do any of those things. In fact, what goes on to say is they continue to hit him and spit on him and slap him. And Jesus doesn't respond in a negative way. Now, I showed you those two. You know why? Because even the Apostle Paul, at times in his flesh, struggled to respond rightly when he was treated wrongly. And only Jesus really does that perfectly. So it's good for us, isn't it, to come to his words today about this very issue. And can I tell you this? 
In a day in which as Christians, as we adhere and hold to the Bible and all the principles and precepts and commandments in it, it is going to be increasingly difficult to respond correctly. When we stick to the real biblical view of marriage, and it's not homosexual marriage, and we stand up against abortion, which is becoming a huge issue again in our culture, and LGBTQ and sexual deviancy and all kinds of things about what the Bible speaks about that our culture does the opposite. You and I are going to need to know how to respond rightly when we are treated wrongly. And so Jesus says in verse 38, you have heard that it was said. And here's a quotation. It's a mixture of about three Old Testament passages. Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, and says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's a law that's called lex talanius, and it means this, and according to its kind. In other words, you have to have the punishment fit the crime. You can't have it too severe. Someone steals something, you can't have capital punishment, have them killed. If they do capital punishment crime, they murder, you can't let them off in a couple years, right? We could probably learn a lesson from that in the United States anymore, right? It's, you can kill babies, but you can't harm spotted owls. Something's twisted. In our culture. But Jesus says, here's why that law exists. To prevent too severe of retribution. It also to prevent too lenient of retribution, where you let someone off too easy for a crime. And Jesus says, here's what you need to do. You need to learn how to respond correctly. And you can't take this law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth that you use in public matters and then transfer it over to private matters, he says. Because what God asked of you in your private matters and your relationships with people is even greater. So in contrast, Jesus says, you know what you've heard, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, verse 39. But I say to you, ready? Do not resist the one who is evil. The word resist is the word antihistamine. It's what we use and we take the pill. If you have allergies, you want to fight allergies, you take antihistamines, right? They're little pills, you take them, inside, right? And it fights it off. And the word means to stand against. See, Christianity is a resistance movement, but not a resistance movement like all the other kingdoms around us. It is different. Jesus said in his conversation with Pilate in John 18, Pilate says, are you a king? Jesus says to him, you say it, it is as you say. He says, but, let me clear that up for you. My kingdom is not of this world. Because if my kingdom was of this world, my soldiers would have been fighting. In other words, I know that normal resistance movements have violence and fighting and war and killing. Not mine. See, Jesus says, Christians who follow me in my kingdom, we do resist the world. We don't compromise with it. We do stand out as a stark alternative to what's going on in our world. But the way we do it is not verbal or, or physical violence, he says. It is a far, we are peacemakers, not troublemakers, he says. It doesn't mean that we say less or we believe less, but we act differently. Romans 12 says, as much as possible... As it depends on you, live at peace with all men. And so what Jesus wants to do this morning for us, as he did for his audience in the first century, is just review for us how we should respond to the four basic human rights. And he's listed them for us as illustrations. The first one is how do you respond when someone attacks your dignity? Look at verse 39. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, 
Turn to him the other also. Now Fred's down in front and that was a good mistake. So if I came up to Fred today and I took the palm of my hand and I pulled off the classes, what cheek would it be, Fred? Your left cheek. What does the text say? Right cheek. Okay? So to hit his right cheek, I didn't have your left hand, which most people were not. Or I have to come across my back hand and slap him across this way, right? In ancient writings, it was said that if you humiliated someone, and that's what it was considered, it was demeaning, it was humiliating to be able to slap someone backhanded across the face. If you did that, 400 silver coins you could be sued for. If you slapped them open-handedly, which hurt more, across the left side of their face, it was only 200 silver coins. Why? Because in a shame and honor culture, the pain of the striking of your face was nothing compared to the dishonor that it brought. So here's what Jesus says. If someone takes the back of their hand and slaps you across the face, which they call the heretic slap, because most of the time you only got slapped like that in public if you were a false teacher. So when Jesus gets slapped, they're thinking he's committing blasphemy because he says he's the son of God. Paul is committing blasphemy because he says God is bringing the Gentiles the same as the Jews. And for them, that was unorthodox and certainly heresy. So you get the backhanded slap, he says, that's terrible, but here's how you should respond. Tell him you're not done yet. Take your hand and slap the other side of my face, Jesus says. That's what it means to turn the cheek. Did you know, can I say to you, if you say, Pastor Walker, I find that very difficult. I mean, if someone's going to slap me and humiliate me and I'm supposed to say, do it again. Listen. That's exactly what Jesus did for you. Have you ever read Isaiah 50 and verse 6? It says of Jesus in the Old Testament, I gave my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Do you know the Bible says in the same gospel in Matthew 27 as we approach Easter, that when Jesus said he was the Christ, they began to slap his face, and I would guess both ways. The Bible says that they took their fists and they struck him in the face. They came up to him and spit. If you've ever had anyone spit in your face, you know how horribly awful that is. But over and over again, they hit him, they strike him, they spit in his face and said, Oh Christ, tell us, prophesy, who spit on you? Who slapped you? And Jesus says nothing. He doesn't yell. He doesn't scream. But he takes both sides of the face. You know why? Because here's what Jesus says. Because I love you so much, I would willingly give up my dignity. The Son of God, who had all the rights in the world, laid his down so that you might live. And so he says to you and I today, this is how much you should love peace. This is how much you love truth. This is how much you love people. Be willing to let go of your dignity so that you can save your purity, so that you can live a life that walks in my steps. So Jesus says, here's the first basic one. Ready? Dignity. But then he goes on to another one that's near and dear to our hearts. He says, let me talk about the basic human right of security. And in verse 40, he says, if anyone would sue you, take you to court, let them, if they take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. In Old Testament law, 
Someone could sue you, and if you didn't have enough money to pay, they could take your clothes, believe it or not. And I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. And there was an inner garment called the tunic. Am I on? Not on. i got to stay close then. Am I on now? Good? All right. A tunic was a half-sleeved garment that went all the way down to below your knees. And oftentimes it was made of linen or it was made of wool, and it could be fairly valuable. When Jesus was at the cross, they bartered for his clothes and they gambled for them because his clothes were valuable. So you'd have this inner garment and it was valuable. Therefore, someone could sue you. You didn't have any property. You didn't have any liquidation cash or anything like that. They could sue you and take your clothes. And so you'd have to give them your inner garment. But God says, because I'm a compassionate God, if they sue you and they want your outer garment too... Here's what happens. Read Exodus 22. It says they can take your outer garment too, but when the sun goes down, they have to give it back every day. You know why? Because you slept with it. If you didn't have a home to live in because you gave all your money and lost it, you had to have at least something to cover up at night. You know why? Because Jerusalem was cold. It's a mile-high city. That's the altitude. So it gets cold there. It actually snows there sometimes. So, So you couldn't take someone's outer garment legally unless you gave it back to them every night. Here's what Jesus says. Listen, if you've done wrong and they're suing you, here's how much I want you to pursue getting right with them. Give them your outer cloak too. So if you don't have the right clothes to wear and you end up being cold, and even if you don't have it at night, here's what he says. That's how far I want you to go, he says. And if you need more motivation, know this, Jesus said. I gave up all my clothes for you. They took my inner tunic and my outer tunic, and they gambled them away. And I, on the cross, forgive me for saying, for six hours on a Friday, hung naked in public in humiliation so that you could be in my kingdom. Jesus says that's the Easter message. The message is give it up even your own personal security and warmth and well-being if that's what it takes My followers are willing to do it. Verse 41, he says, Dignity, security, liberty. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Israel in Jesus' day was occupied by Rome. That meant that Jewish people were slaves. And the Romans liked to regularly remind them of it. And one of the ways they had authority from Caesar to do so was to constrict Jewish people to do whatever they wanted to supply them. So if you went into town and you needed a donkey, you could take theirs. If you needed some food or vegetables, you could take theirs. You could walk into a market and take all the food you wanted. Roman soldiers could do that. Also, one of the things they were allowed to do is make Jewish people do all the menial tasks that they didn't want to do. So if you're a Roman soldier and you're walking through Palestine and you're walking through Jerusalem and your heavy, huge backpack was weighing you down and the summer heat was beating down on you, you could say, hey, you, come on over here. Carry my pack for a mile. And you could do it for up to a mile. Imagine how that would go over today. You're driving to work, right? The police officer pulls you over on the side of the road. You, you see the flashing lights in your, in your rear view mirror and you're wondering, I wasn't speeding. I don't think I broke any laws. He pulls you over and he comes up to the car. You put the window down and he says, by the way, where do you think you're going? You're going, I'm going over here to work. He goes, no, you're not. See this package? And he shoves it through the window. You're taking this to Philly today. You go, no, I'm not. 
Yes, you are, or you will be arrested. You go, I am taking that to Philly. That would be what it's like today. Imagine just being able to stop you anywhere, anytime, and tell you this is what you're doing now. See, that's how Jewish people felt. So let me tell you how it really feels. Ready? Listen to this. So Jesus is saying, when someone infringes on your liberty, and that person happens to be someone that you hate, a Roman soldier, and you're a Jew, and you happen to be going in the opposite direction, and now he makes you go in this direction, and then he happens on a hot day to make you carry a very heavy backpack. And by the way, that backpack has in the weapons he uses to hurt and kill your people, and he wants you to carry it. A person that you avow that you are his enemy and he is yours. So when he, that person, says, carry my stuff for a mile, here's what Jesus says. Carry it for two. See how radical what he's saying is? He doesn't say resist. He doesn't say get in their face. He doesn't say pull out the L and say there ain't no way I'm doing that. No, you know what he says? Go farther. Walk an extra mile. Do what's more than necessary. October 2nd, 2006. You know the story. A one-room Amish schoolhouse had 10 girls from the age of 6 to 13 in it near Lancaster. A guy walks in and shoots 8 out of 10 girls, 5 of them which die, and then he kills himself. Can you imagine... I mean, talk about revenge. Talk about how hard it would be to say, give place to wrath because God says, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. You know how easy it would feel to step in and say, no, today vengeance will be mine. I mean, for no reason he steps in and kills your daughter. But you know what the families, the Amish families did? The same day, they extended forgiveness to him and his family. They visited the shooter's widow and went to her house to comfort her. Thirty Amish members of the community attended the shooter's funeral. They even invited the shooter's wife, who remained after his suicide, to come to their daughter's funerals. Can you imagine? How radical is that? Talk about going the extra mile. I mean, who does that kind of stuff? Kingdom people do. God's people do. It is totally contrary and countercultural to everything that we know. And Jesus says, exactly, that's how you treat people. That's what it means to follow me. And by the way, didn't Jesus do that for us? The story about the cross in Matthew's gospel says that Jesus was compelled by the Roman soldiers to carry the wooden crossbeam to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And as he's walking and is so weak from this scourging and lack of water and loss of blood that a man in the crowd whose name was Simon of Cyrene, the Bible says the Roman soldiers pick him out and they compel him 
to carry Jesus' cross. And I always wondered, why in the world do they put that in there? Obviously, one reason is to show Jesus' humanity and that he was weak and he gets tired and struggled. But you know what it is? I think in a, more of a spiritual mes- message is this, that if you want to follow Jesus, when he's compelled to take a cross, you do too. See, he was compelled. Simon says, the wrong, he could have said no and he could have resisted. He says, that's not my cross, but he didn't. He picked it up. And walk with Jesus to Calvary. Is that not what Jesus says to you and me today? You want to follow me? You want to be in my kingdom? Then live it. Display it. Express it in your relationships with others. Even when those other people are your enemies. As he sets us up for the next paragraph. See, when I have to take my cross, so do you, he says. So Jesus says, let me talk to you about these four basic human rights that you need to let go of. Dignity, security, liberty, and lastly, he says, property. Property. We are a possessive people, aren't we? I remember growing up, and my sisters, I have two older sisters and one younger sister, and my two older sisters were always yelling, you took my blouse, and those are my jeans. Why are you wearing? Did you ask me? Did that happen in your home? I was so glad I was a guy because they couldn't touch anything of mine. <laughs> right? And we know, can I borrow your car? Uh, uh, we, we, we know what we're supposed to say and we hesitate. Because when I was a, um, my first youth pastorate, I had a brand new car. I had it for a few months. It was a four-door. It was silver. I remember how cool it was. Before that, I had this green car that was like 24 years old. And my wife had to push me to get it going. It was that bad. No. It was bad. But we had this brand new car. And so we were going out of town. And Chris Hollenbach, I think, was his name. He was new there. He didn't have hardly any money. You know, I, had, I had, didn't have much, but he had a lot less. Right? And he's going to be gone. He said, oh, our car broke down. And we need to get groceries and do some things. Can we borrow your car this week? And I go, what did you say? Can I borrow your c- c- car? I said, okay. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of joy in that. But I did. I let him have it. So I get back from vacation six days later. Six days. He got an accident. Scraped the whole thing all the way down the side. I said, I told you, Lord. Didn't I tell you? <laughs> it was hard for me. I wanted to say, never again will I borrow a car. So I decided I'm going to have such a junky car. I'll borrow it out and say, if you want it, you got it. It's hard, isn't it? We are so possessive people. But Jesus says, listen to this, verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you. See, if someone comes up to you and they have a real need enough to ask you and they're begging. Now, listen, I don't give money to every beggar. I've been downtown Trenton a lot and, I, and, and other places, um, even in Hamilton, surrounding areas. Listen, people come up to you and they ask you for stuff. I know they're going to buy dope. I know that they want to drink alcohol. So I don't give money. I'll talk to you. I'll take you out to dinner. I'll pay for your lunch. I don't, but that's, Jesus is not saying carte blanche, give to anybody, hey, Pastor Walker, I'd like to buy this new car. Could you give me 10 grand? No. So he's not saying that, but he said, listen, if there's someone who comes up to you and has a real need, here's what my people are like. We are generous people. We are givers. We don't hesitate. We give. I had to borrow money to a friend and a relative a couple different times, and they said, hey, can I borrow this amount of money? And I said, absolutely not. But I will give it to you because I don't when if you're not able to pay it back, I will not have you 
feeling bad about it and have it hurt our relationship. I made a thing. If someone asks me for money, if I can give it to you, I will. But I will not borrow to you. But I borrowed other stuff. I got lots of tools because you know I don't use them. But I borrow them out all the time. But I'll have to, honestly, some people come, Pastor Walker, could I borrow that set of books? I go, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, you can. Why? Because Jesus says this is who we are on the inside. See, we don't hold on to stuff. We hold on to people. And Jesus says this is how you respond. And see, today it could be there are people here and families are being divided. You know why? Because there are wives who are still angry at their husbands and they would like to have some revenge for what the husband has done. There are children who are upset with their parents and parents who are upset with their children. There are people in church who maybe don't sit together or talk with each other anymore. You know why? Because they're angry and they're bitter because you said this and you did this. And and, and you know what? Here's the truth. Jesus says, you can say you'll get yours. But what you should say is this. Jesus took mine. See, he took all that for me. He laid down his rights for me. That's what it means to follow him. And so when you are wronged, you do right, not because it's to your advantage, not because it'll help you out, not because it even rectifies it sometimes, and not because it's always responded to well by others. It isn't. So if you think you're doing right because you're going to get something out of it, you may be completely wrong because most times you do not. Jesus says, do right when you are wronged. Here's why. Because you are sons of the Most High God. That's why. You are my people and my kingdom, and we live differently. Jesus says, that's the kind of righteousness I'm talking about. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, in just a moment, we'll conclude our service today with 611, He hideth my soul. See, maybe today Jesus has broken down your confidence. You say, Pastor Walker, I don't relate to people like that. I can't even give a holy honk, much less any of those other things. And the way I think about people and retaliate and the things I say, probably not to their face, but behind their back. See, we don't have that righteousness. And maybe that righteousness you lack is because you don't know him. And if you don't know him, can I say, I invite you to come forward as we sing because we would like to introduce you to him, that you can know him and the righteousness that he can give to you that can change your life for eternity. But if you do know him and you claim to be his disciple, the question would be today, are you like him? Do you have the righteousness that only he can give? Is it on display in your relationships at home, at church, on the job? How do you say things when you are wronged? How do you act? How do you respond? Jesus says, unless you have a righteousness from the inside out, you'll never enter my kingdom. But if you have it, let's live it for the glory of God. Father, I pray that you would allow your spirit to take your word, move in our hearts. 
Help us to be convinced of sin and righteousness and judgment. That for those today who are here and don't have your righteousness because they don't have your son, may they have him today and in doing so may they have life in his name. For those who have life but are not living it, Father, break down their confidence. Give them a broken and a contrite heart, O Lord, because with these sacrifices you are well pleased. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.